We are in a series on the book of Acts. Let me pray and we will get started. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this time and this gathering that we have. And thank you for this community and for the amazing people that gather each week. I pray once again that our hearts and our minds would be opened, um, that we would not only just read and understand, but that our hearts would actually see and be transformed. These stories, uh, God, may we be reminded, are not simply there for us to just uh, study. They are there because this is our heritage, our identity. This is uh, the history of who we are as a people and a commission to who we are for how we are to live in this world as followers of you. So help us to submit ourselves once again to your teaching and to your word. And I pray this in your name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patra, Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. A couple things, notice the we's. That's going to come into our teach today very, very critically. Second, notice the geographical locations. We already talked last week about other accounts, other historical mythologies, other people telling stories about different places that people have traveled. And Luke may be retelling some of that. And these particular locations, they're not just geographical markers. They're trying to retell a story, just like ancient people traveled all over the world to spread their ideas, uh, to connect commerce, etc. So Paul is now taking on that same commission Uh, The followers, by the way, I should say, not just Paul, but also the other followers of Jesus. So we're noticing these markers, and we're paying attention to those geographical locations. Sometimes we skip over that because it's like, I don't want to memorize all these different places. Um, But they're important for us to understand what the journey, what the emphasis is in these texts. We sought out the disciples there uh, and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. I've entitled this message, The Family That Travels Together. And very much like other statements, the family that travels together 
stays together. So you, this is a phraseology that many of us are very familiar with. This is a, a passage that, if you noticed, I already highlighted it for you in the text. Previous segments of the book of Acts are written in the third-person account, meaning Paul did this, they did that, so-and-so did this and that. And in chapter 21, scholars have pointed out, and maybe something that we might miss, there's a significant pronoun shift. And that pronoun shift is now to the first-person personal plural. Some of you are like, please don't take me back to grammar English class. But this is really important because the narrative that Luke is writing Oftentimes we think of as some sort of historical account, which it is. But in addition, chapter 21, and then scattered throughout portions of this later book, uh, later portion of Acts, changed to we. We did this, and we did that, and us, and our. And you may not feel this necessarily because we're trying to get to the story of what happened, but that pronoun shift is significant. Because it means that what Luke is writing, in addition to the details, is he's writing an autobiography. He's writing about how we were there. We saw this. We participated. And throughout the course of events, both the highs and the lows, the good times and the bad times, he is there along with all of these disciples that are traveling. And don't forget that they then stayed with him throughout this journey. The family that travels together stays together, and this is what I'd like to highlight for us today. Because in our context, and especially with some of the recent events that have been going on, statements that have been made, news reports, particular uh, conflicts that happen between uh, religious institutions, etc., the family that travels together does not always stay together. In fact, oftentimes what we do is we draw lines and we out and we other and we ostracize and we identify ourselves not as you anymore. And so what I'd like to do is try to take this particular passage that we just read and maybe journey us through a little bit of how did this community stick together? Not always because things went well, but they had some commitments And they had some core ethics and values that held them together. The family that travels together does stay together. And that is really important for us in understanding our journey here today because they had to wrestle with the very same thing back then. The first thing I want to point out is the family that travels together honors or remembers one another. Honors or remembers one another. The passage in verse 16, some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason or Nason. And actually in Greek, whenever you have those two consonants together, you actually pronounce both of them. So it would be pronounced Mnason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Now, this particular character is mentioned, and we don't know anything else about him other than he was from Cyprus. He was hospitable. And he was one of the early disciples. He was one of the first followers of Jesus. Now, a quick side note, which is very fascinating. One of the oldest documents that we have of the New Testament, it's called, very technical term, Codex Sinaiticus, which just simply means the book that was written around the Sinai Peninsula and area. It's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, Greek manuscript that we have of the New Testament. Actually has this text, and if you notice carefully, for those of you who read Greek, the word nason actually is translated Jason. 
So I thought that was really fascinating, especially since we have a couple Jasons uh, in our community. Now, what does this word mean, Nason or Jason? It actually means remembering. And it comes from the same root word from where we get the word mnemonic or mnemonic, depending upon how you like to pronounce it. All cows eat grass, one of those famous ways in which you memorize particular uh, things, scales, uh, so A-C-E-G. A mnemonic is a way of memorizing that. So Mason is a name that literally means to remember or to bring back to mind. And what's so fascinating about this is that he's just simply mentioned as somebody who's hospital. It almost appears as if he's just kind of an add-on to the text. But if you read Acts carefully, and there's actually several examples of this. Earlier on in the book of Acts, there's a guy by the name of Titius Justus, and it simply says, a worshiper of God. That's all it says. We know nothing else about this gentleman other than that he's a worshiper of God. Titius Justus, Nason, Mason, Jason, however you want to say that, they're mentioned here. And they're mentioned because this text, this story, this history is pausing for a moment to remember these people to honor them and to acknowledge them as part of the journey. So often when we read the book of Acts, we think of Paul. Uh, We're going to think of Silas, perhaps. We're going to think of Jesus, obviously, Peter, the big disciple names, all of those people that we might be very familiar with. I am struck with the brilliant remembering that Acts does of people that may, to us, seem very insignificant or an add-on to the story. But the reality is they were critical to the story. And Nason plays that role. He's hospitable. And this icon actually has developed throughout Christian history to honor this person of whom we know virtually nothing. But he's mentioned, we remember him, and he's honored by his mentioning as somebody who is hospitable. And what it says is one of the early disciples, the Greek phrase could simply literally mean one of the archaic learners, one of the old guys amongst us. And I love this phrase because the word archaic, which comes from the first word for beginning, may seem to indicate that this person was actually very old. Now, in our culture, when we call somebody old, is that a positive connotation or is that a negative connotation? Both? Oh, you're a good man. Good job. Well done. Yeah, you get a pat on the back for that. Oftentimes, however, in most of us, when we say the phrase old, it actually is a negative connotation because we very much value the young. We value the innovative. We value that which is coming up and uh, emergent and youthful, and we're all striving for that. But here's a gentleman who's listed in the book of Acts, hospitable, man from Cyprus, and an archaic learner. And so he's memorialized, he's remembered, he's honored as somebody who's hospitable and somebody who's old. And that phrase, archaic, is actually a positive term. There are people in our community and there are people within the greater Christian community who are old, who are the archaic learners, who are the people who are first disciples amongst us. And we should take some notes and lessons, and I think Spark is actually very, very good at this, of recognizing that every single generation in our midst is a valued member. And we would be worse off 
if it weren't for the young amongst us, and we would be worse off if it weren't for the old amongst us. And I won't mention any names again because in our particular culture, we don't want to call anybody out. But we are a community that values deeply and greatly those in our community who are the archaic learners. Uh, I use a phrase called generational chauvinism. The idea that one generation is better than the other. And we have this generational chauvinism from both ways. Younger people think that the old people are old and outdated and they don't even know how to program their iPhone anymore. And the older people think that the younger people are, you know, mindless and uh, barbaric and they're only governed by the whims of their hormones. Well, all that might be actually true. So, uh, anyway... Yet we think of them as not having the grounding or the experience or whatever it is. And I love in our particular text, both the young and the old are honored and respected in our communities. And they are people that are honored and remembered in the text. And so one of the lessons that we take away from this Acts text is that we stop and we honor and we remember. And if there are people in our community that are old, we use that phrase, archaic, to mean that they bring a heritage and a tradition and a longevity that blesses and honors this community. And we value and we welcome it. So here's a gentleman who, is a comp- who has possibly accompanied us. Scholars debate whether or not Nason has actually traveled with them, but he possibly could have. He's hospitable, he's kind, and he's an old and an early disciple. And Part of what we take away from this is for us. If our early ancestors, way back in the first century, stopped to honor and remember people like Nason, like Jason, like Manason, we ought to do the same. Earlier this year, um, I got notice that my youth pastor had passed away from cancer. And I wrote a little bit of a tribute. I was going to read some of that for you, but if you're interested, you can go on my blog and read a little bit of what I wrote. His name is Rex. Rex was the first person in my life that welcomed me into the church. This was when I came from a broken home. And when I say broken home, I mean like broken dishes and broken heads and all sorts of broken furniture. And uh, I remember going to the church and feeling like I don't really have a home that I can go to. And Rex, the youth pastor at my local church, was there. And he welcomed me in. He was the first person to see that maybe, just maybe, this crazy little kid from, you know, the backwoods of Napa might have a place in ministry. So he allowed me to teach and participate in some uh, areas of the church. He allowed me to give one of my very first sermons at this congregation, which was, I don't know, however many years ago. He uh, gave me the opportunity to drive his red Chrysler LeBaron convertible to my junior prom. Oh, it was so glorious. He was also the youth pastor that when the new girl showed up, tried to get me to ask her out and date her, which was his way of welcoming her into our community, (laughs) not knowing that later on our parents were actually going to hook up, get married, and now she's my stepsister. (laughs) Rex was the first person also to sit me down. (laughs) Rex was also the first person to sit me down in his office, and he was going, uh, he was my ear. I was like, can I tell you about what's going on at home and how I can't stand? You know, just as you do with your, with your people that love you and, and welcome you in. And he was the first person to look at me and said, Kevin, you're a follower of Jesus. Don't you think your attitude should be different? 
don't you think you should consider how you should be loving and kind to your parents even though they may not be? I was like, I'm only 15, don't tell me this. And I remember that being one of the first moments of trying to realize, trying to understand what compassion and mercy and empathy was to somebody else. Um, Rex went on to do other things. I was a part of that church, and I never, you know, when you're growing spiritually, you stop and you remember. That was really formative for me. And um, with all due humility, if throughout the rest of my life, any of you or anybody within my ministerial career has been blessed by anything that I've done, we all need to stop and remember him. Because I don't know if ministry would have been my track or trying to love and help people uh, through the way of Jesus, through this Christian uh, church kind of thing, had it not been for him. Because had it not been for his welcome and his incarnation of Jesus to me, I'm not quite sure where I would be in that particular sense. So, my friends, in this message, and as well as on my blog and my post, I pay tribute to him and thank him and are so grateful for that investment, his, hospita- uh, his hospitality to me, his kindness to me, and uh, his shaping my thinking, his giving me opportunity to share. And I hope that as I remember him and as I think about the journey, and by the way, it's not just him. I was going down a list of people, but he just happens to be one of the first. As I think and remember and pay tribute, I'm also reminded, oh, just like Rex was that way to me, so may I continue that tradition in how I relate to each of you, to the people that come across in my paths and journey. And this is what remembering and honoring does. It spurs us on to live in such a way that pays tribute, honors those particular people. So my friends, my question for you, the family that travels together, and as they make this list, my question for you is truly an applicable, tangible, do something about this kind of lesson. Who do you need to remember? We're in a season where there's a lot to discuss and debate and argue about. I would encourage us, as we chart through this story of Acts, who do you need to remember? Who was there along your journey? And maybe it was somebody in this room, maybe it was somebody from a long time ago. Who do you need to remember? Who do you need to honor? Who do you need to pay tribute? And I would encourage you, if you feel so inclined, if the Spirit so moves you, actually tangibly honor them. Write them a letter call them, send them an email. You know, I've been doing ministry for a long time. It's just been such a blessing. Every now and then I'll get a nice, encouraging email. And sometimes at the beginning of the email, somebody will say, I know you probably get a lot of these emails. Let me tell you something. And for those of you who are teachers, for those of you who influence anybody else, you know the truth and the reality. You don't get a lot of those, do you? It's very, very rare for people to stop, to pause, to remember, and to physically, tangibly reach out and acknowledge those of you who have been so influential in your particular journey. So my encouragement for you, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, no matter uh, where, uh, what kind of path you have taken, there is, there is a Mason amongst your journey in your past, in your, in your history. There is a Jason that was there, that was hospitable, that was kind. There was somebody there who you need to remember, who you need to honor, and who you need to pay tribute. And I would encourage you sometime this week to actually tangibly write them, email them, 
send them a card or give them a hug or whatever you need to do. Just say, thank you for being that. And here's why that's important. Not only will you bless them as a result, but you will be blessing yourself. You will be bringing back to mind, especially as we just read this from the book of Acts, you will be, you will be bringing back to mind how they treated you, which encourages and challenges you to behave in that same way. Bring that back to mind. And which is fascinating, which is why his name is Mason anyway, from the root word to remember. So number one, the family that travels together remembers one another, honors one another. And I hope that uh, this passage and the story of Mason encourages us to remember those in our journey. Second, the family that travels together argues with each other. Now, this is, oh man, this is my, uh, yeah, here we go. Are you ready? Here we go. Verse four, if you noticed, there was a tension, a contention that was happening in this passage. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and they're urging him. And you can kind of tell uh, from, their, uh, from the text, they are really urging him, like with tears and with anxiety. And then, later on, in that narrative, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, that may not mean anything to you if you don't remember that earlier on in the book of Acts, in chapter 11, Agabus shows up previously, but this was his prophecy. One of them, named Agabus, stood up through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. In other words, the only previous prophecy that we know about Agabus is a doom and gloom kind of prophecy. So when Agabus shows up, dun, 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 just get ready. He is kind of like the Debbie Downer of prophets, right? That's who he is. So he shows up and pleads with them, don't go. He binds himself by the belt of Paul and he says, look, if you go, this is what's going to happen. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? So in that phrase, you can feel that there is a real tension, a real contention, that there's a split and a divide amongst the people and figuring out how in the world are, is this really the right thing to do? I'm not quite sure. I really don't want you to go. Paul, however, argues back. I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a pretty harsh argument back. And then I love verse 14. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up. <laughs> and we said, the Lord's will be done. That phrase, we gave up, literally means we rested, we ceased, we stopped. This line of argumentation is not really going anywhere. In our journey of Acts... We often think of a journey that is an argumentation or a contention between the outside forces and the inside forces. But here in chapter 21, as well as other places, we see that within the movement itself, there's argument, there's tension, and there's struggle as to figure out what is the right thing to do. And I kind of imagine the disciples first are doing their argumentation. And then Paul argues back, well, no, wait a second, let me go to Jerusalem. And then Agabus shows up, and then he wants to argue a particular thing. And then Paul says, don't listen to him. He's just the doom and gloom, Debbie Downer kind of prophet. Don't listen to him. And I can imagine that this, uh, even though it's not necessarily mentioned in the text, you can imagine very much so that this back and forth, back and forth is going on. And there's real heartache and there's real tension that is happening there. 
Later on, there's a continuation of some additional tension. Paul ends up going to Jerusalem, but in chapter 21, there's this narrative. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see Jacob. For those of you who've been around Spark now, you know that it's not James, it's Jacob. And all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done through the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. Here's another tension point. Rumor about how he's been teaching, and these elders are trying to figure out how do we PR this really, really well now that you're in town. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. This is mentioned already in Acts chapter 15. And notice this verse. The next day, Paul took the men, purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Two stories about Paul in contention with people that he's in relationship with, two different responses. The first response is that he's like, no, I need to go. And the people essentially submit to Paul's will. The second argument, the second tension, the second confrontation, Paul says, okay, I think your idea is good. And he submits to it. And here we have in an example within this narrative of argumentation within that body, within that community, and two different ways for figuring out how to manage difference of opinion, difference of idea, different emotional states in the problems that they were facing. These particular stories tell us that these early disciples, these early followers, these early Christians were involved with a lot of dialogue, a lot of give and take. There was a lot of mutual submission to one another. There was a lot of faith and trust in one another. And ultimately, there was a lot of love. And these arguments are not absent from the community. They are fully present in the community. And in fact, one of the reasons why I have this graphic up here with the boxing gloves and the hearts, in fact, argument with the community is evidence that you are committed and love that community. Uh, In business circles, for those of you who are part of organizations and management and all that stuff, it is the employees that argue with you that you want. As soon as employees go, I don't care, that means they are disengaged and they have lost commitment and lost love with the organization. It's when they are saying, but this needs to be fixed. This is an area that I see that's problematic. And very much like that, so the early community had arguments. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. This is a bad idea. Paul said, yes, I need to go to Jerusalem. This is part of the whole deal. He gets to Jerusalem. Paul, listen, you need to take on this vow so that the other people that have been spreading rumors about you, if you continue on in the way that you've been continuing on, those rumors are only going to be exacerbated and there's going to be further problems and you could be threatened and put to death. But Paul said, okay, that's a good idea. I should submit to that 
vow. There was a lot of this tension going back and forth. And somehow, in some particular way, through all those arguments, this community maintained connection with each other. They did it together. That is illuminated and highlighted because later on in chapter 3, there's another story about conflict. The next morning, chapter 23, verse 12, The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Jeez. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. I really want to know what happened to these people. The story of Acts doesn't tell us. What I find fascinating is in chapter 21, 22, and then through 23, you have these arguments, you have these contention pieces, and it seems as if this particular story in chapter 23 is in stark contrast with how the early movement managed their argumentation. The early movement managed their arguments through a lot of give and take, a lot of faith, a lot of love. Different people arguing in different particular ways. Different people thinking about issues in different ways. Different people having different ways or modes of expressing. Some very calm. Some very big and loud. But yet, committed. Give and take. Mutual submission. You are still a part of my family. And chapter 23 comes along and says, but then there are some people the only way that they manage conflict is with contempt. And I would suggest to you that the early movement of Jesus is all about argumentation, but not about contempt. And we have forgotten this, we have lost this, and we need to reclaim this. Contempt, and oftentimes we get them confused, which is why whenever there is an argument within a community, we have an emotional PTSD reaction and feel like we need to step away. But here's the difference. Contempt is complete disregard, complete disrespect, and almost disgust at the other. That's what these 40 Jews were doing when they said, we're not going to eat or drink anything until we kill this person. That person must go away. That person must die. Contempt is when you believe that the other person's humanity is no longer worthy of consideration. That's contempt. And I'm sensing and feeling that in our In our modern discourse, in our conversations, we have conflated these two. That just because we have arguments with one another, disagreements with one another, conflict with one another, that has equaled contempt for one another. And what I'm going to suggest to you is as we reclaim this family that has traveled together and argued together and continues to stay together, that their way of arguing does damage to that contempt does damage to contempt. And it is okay in a community like ours, and it's okay within the larger Christian community to have really good, powerful argumentation, wrestling, contention, ideas, different offenses even. Hey, what you said may may have rubbed me the wrong way. But we do so with mutual respect, mutual love, and with the absence of, of contempt. So in our community, or with this lesson, I would encourage us to consider, with whom do you need to argue in faith and love and in mutual submission rather than contempt? Many of us 
online as well as in person, have had a lot of arguments lately. And the arguments themselves have devolved into contempt. Devolved into, I don't think you're a person anymore. I don't think you're human anymore. I don't even think you have a soul anymore, given what you've said. How could you say such a thing? My friends, somehow, some way, this early movement found a way to argue with one another, to have staunch debate, to contend with one another over what was right, what was wrong, what, what they should believe, what they shouldn't believe, what was the right path, what was the right journey. They had, to, they had to figure all of this stuff out. But they did so without dehumanizing one another. They did so still with loving one another, mutually submitting to one another. And I would encourage us that we need to do the same thing. And when there is an argument, when there is an offense, when there is somebody that says something to you that you're like, wait a second, I'm not quite sure if I'm on board with that, you don't necessarily take it immediately as contempt. Don't feel as if somebody is pushing you out. Or you don't push somebody else out as a result of your ideas or your opinions. Which leads me to my last piece. The family that travels together, travels together. And there are some people that have said to us, that have said to you, I don't know if I can be with you anymore. I have to leave that community. I have to cut ties. I have to defriend you. And I'm just bringing up the question, how did these people continue to manage to be together? And by being together, everybody is made better. Everybody is redeemed. Everybody gets to move forward. Everybody learns a little bit more of compassion and empathy and listening. Everybody learns how to keep this thing going without completely destroying it by dividing. At the very end of Acts chapter 28, after some third-person narrative, the pronouns shift again. And I won't read for you the entire chapter, but notice them. After we had reached safety, when we then learned, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And the rest of that narrative continues on with the we and the our and the us. So my friends, the family that travels together remembers one another, honors one another, acknowledges and pays tribute to one another. To remind us of who we are, to remind us of our heritage, to honor those in our community, in our midst, and in our personal journeys of those who are the archaic learners, the old ones amongst us. The family that travels together argues with one another, and it's okay to debate and discuss. And I hope Spark does a good job as well as a better job and an improving job of allowing that kind of conversation to happen without contempt, without a dehumanization of the other. And as we do those two things together, that is how this early Christian community traveled together and took that message to the ends of the earth which is why we are here today. Today, Again, the reason why this series is called Acts is we're supposed to ask the question, how did we get here? Well, part of that how was through very complicated, difficult, challenging argumentation, remembering all of that stuff. And so if that's how we got here, oh, maybe we too should try to exemplify those same ways. I would encourage you to think, who do you need to remember? Who do you need to write? Who do you need to email? Who do you need to hug? And who do you need to say 
thank you for being that Jason, that Nason in my life, the person who was hospitable to me. And second, if there are people in your life who, if you stop for a moment, recognize, you know what, they are still a part of my family. They are still doing their best to follow Jesus if you're within that faith tradition. They're still human. Who are those people in your life that are on the outside, that have been pushed to the outside and maybe figure out, learn, try, redeem your past conversations and argumentation to try to rehumanize that relationship um, and say, I do not want to be the kind of person that breeds contempt in this world because contempt is ultimately what's going to destroy us and dehumanize all of us, even the person that has that contempt. And if we can do that, then I think we're on good standing, not only for bringing in the tradition of Acts, but we're on good standing for how we then move forward in this world, especially in this world and in this context that we have. Okay, God, please help us to do this. Amen.